Hey everyone, welcome to Film Suck, a Patreon podcast in which we ponder the work of art in the age of crap cinema. I'm Eileen Jones. I'm Dolores McElroy. And today we are grappling with Jordan Peele's new film, Nope. He's continuing, at least partly, um, among many other things he's got going on in this very ambitious project, his main project of all of his films, um, uh, of examining the Black experience in America through a horror film lens, though in Nope he's adding a, it's a sci-fi horror hybrid. Um, he began this, of course, with his famous, you know, earlier movie, Get Out, in 2017, continued it with Us, 2019, and and now we've got Nope. And I think both Dolores and I are, are united, just to tell you right off the bat, in, in really admiring this film. And it's a challenging film, um, and we're going to, you know, try to delve. <laughs> <laughs> so, here we go. And, you know, warning ahead of time before I even summarize. There's going to be just spoilers galore. There's no way to talk about Nope in any depth without just spoiling everything. So yeah. if you haven't seen Nope, and the question is why, <laughs> get ye to the theater because it is so worth watching. It's beyond belief. Incredibly mm-hmm. engrossing. Um, and I think maybe bordering on Masterpiece. Tremendously exciting film. I've been thinking about it ever since I saw it. <laughs> So anyway, um, we, we, it's interesting that we intend, we seem to be, in, with this episode following up without really planning on it, our episodes in the last few months that we're dealing with um, male directors with relatively few films, such as Robert Eggers and Alex Garland, who are quickly identified as auteurs based on a first or early film that made a big impression on critics and audiences. So Peel definitely seems to be in that, in that camp. Um, this is a film that's about, and I, it's going to be a long summary. Sorry, Emily, doing this because it, it's going to be easier to talk about the the, the themes, the ideas, the uh, the emotions that are being evoked um, if you have a grip on the basics. So here's what it's about. There's a pair of siblings named OJ, that's Otis Jr., uh, and <laughs> Emerald, I know, Emerald Haywood. Um, they're trying to keep their family horse ranch, which is called Haywood's Hollywood Horses, operational um after the death of their father it's the only black owned ranch providing trained horses to the hollywood entertainment industry um and that's it's going to be hard enough to keep that going without the repeated appearances of what appears to be a ufo that's spooking their horses and soon doing a lot worse than that the siblings attempt to capture what they call the quote-unquote oprah shot uh of the ufo the shot that in other words they get saturation media coverage makes them rich and famous and saves their ranch um is is That's dealing with one of the film's major themes, the most talked about so far, Um, which is about the way we compulsively turn our experiences of reality into spectacle. Um, Jordan Peele is doing lots and lots of interviews, of course, and as he says, he's going to be happy if this can just be considered a summer blockbuster, so clearly he just is looking for a mainstream success. (laughs) Um, But he's also indicating there's, there's certainly a lot more going on. He's really emphasizing this kind of seeming critique of this, this the spectacle of uh, that we've made into reality welcome to modernity everyone um <laughs> the film starts with a very ominous and obscure bible quote um from a minor prophet nahum if i'm pronouncing that correctly chapter three verse six and it's um dealing with god is rebuking the the, the 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 sins of the people of the corrupt uh and very cruel city of nineveh which is capital of the assyrian empire and it's a city that, if you want to go bother to go look it up, is uh, also called in the Bible, the city of blood, full of lies, full of plunder, never without victims. If you keep reading the passages, there are also descriptions of the galloping of horses. So, you know, yeah. however, <laughs> he came upon this knowledge. Jordan Peele apparently knows the obscure parts of the Bible. So there you go. 
Um, but the quote, the quote that's the opening, that is the on a title card in the opening, is I will cast abominable filth upon you, make you vile, and make you a spectacle. Okay. So that's God's um threat to the to the people of Nineveh. Okay, so then following that, there's a truly frightening scene of a chimpanzee who's starring in an old sitcom called Gordy's Home going on a rampage that kills fellow cast members. And of course, everyone flees the scene. Um, uh, they are pl- the cast members are playing Gordy's white human family. Um, and the, there's one traumatized survivor. It's a, it's a, um, a child actor who's Asian. He's clearly playing, you know, or seemingly playing the family's adopted son. Um, who's who's nicknamed i guess jupiter um this figure that we see in this we don't know yet that it's a flashback but it is he's going to grow up to be another figure who like the haywoods is hanging on the fringe of the hollywood film industry about 40 miles outside you know in the desert area i forget what it's called i think it's agua agua dolce Dolce, yeah which is just sweet water and i guess like um so yeah, so they're outside hanging on the fringes and neither, you know, none of them doing particularly well. None of them are heading up <laughs> in the Hollywood <laughs> film industry. But at any rate, the grown-up character um, whose name is St- in the film is Steve Jupe and Jupe refers back to his, this character he played, Jupe Park. He's the owner and MC of a Wild West um, theme park called Jupiter's Claim. And he's played by the actor um, um, Stephen Yoon. And, of course, the great Daniel Kaluuya and Kiki Palmer are playing the, the siblings, the Haywoods. Um, uh, and, of course, if you know, you know Kaluuya is come to, came to prominence as a film star. With, he's a, you know, he was a longtime respected British stage and screen actor. But he came to prominence with Peel's Get Out. And he turned down, this seems noteworthy, um, appearing in the sequel to Black Panther in order to star in Nope. And, nice. you know, for which we salute him. <laughs> I mean, that's walking away from such money. Oh, my God. And, yeah. and a successful franchise and everything else. Wowzers. That just doesn't happen. You know, let's just say that. <laughs> um, and Kiki Palmer, who is very vivid, very funny, uh, kind of, you know, pr- practically enchanting. His amazing timing. She's an actor and singer who's actually been around a long time. She started as a child actor in films like Medea's Family Reunion, Nikila and the Bee. But she still seems revelatory because she's so fantastic in this film and Jordan Peele seems to know what he's got in her and he's really promoting her as like she needs to be a star. Mm-hmm. Um, so again, just another warning. Spoilers, spoilers, spoilers all over the place. So if you haven't seen the movie, you might want to stop right here and listen after you've seen it. So first, let's just try to answer the hard question. What do we think? Dolores, take it away. <laughs> um, okay. Well, I'm just gonna I'm gonna keep it surface level right now. Okay. Um, it was tremendously enjoyable um mm. just to sit in the theater and experience this film. So if you're I doubt you're listening to this podcast to like, you know, find out should I go to the movie theater to see this. But if you mm-hmm. are, yes, do. Um, it's really fun. Um, it's gorgeously shot, like mm-hmm. truly beautiful. And we'll talk a little bit about the specifics about mm-hmm. uh, of what cameras they used. Um, uh, the performances are top notch. I mean, Daniel Kaluuya, I just marveled the whole time. How much? Oh my God. Oh my God. Yeah. Just, he's got, again, that, that stillness of a true movie star that is Mm -hmm. riveting. He does. I mean, if you're thinking in terms of like actions, you know, he's Mm -hmm. doing very little, but his presence is so compelling. Um, he's absolutely brilliant. You know, you could watch him for hours and Mm -hmm. luckily we got to, um, Mm -hmm. and then, um, uh, uh, sorry, uh, Kiki, um, 
Oh Palmer. my God. Kiki Palmer is phenomenal. Um, sparkling, I would say. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and they, they mm-hmm. have great chemistry. And even the guy who plays um, Angel. Uh, oh, the, yes. The He's guy from. very delightful. What's yeah, who's, who's the guy from here. like the equivalent of like Best Buy. Um, he is yeah. played. <laughs> Um, he's played by Brandon Perea. Um, he's a tech salesman at this place called like Fry's Electronics and he helps them rig equipment to, um, Uh capture the alien on film. Um, Uh he's hilarious. Um, so the cast is great. It's, you know, incredibly watchable. Um, it's, uh, it, it gets a little long by the end, or at least it did for me, but there's so much to think about it. Uh, there's so much to think about. It's so rich in the threads it's proposing. For one, there's the sort of like um, rewriting of or reworking highlighting Mm -hmm. (laughs) of the history of black people in the motion picture industry, which Mm -hmm. is a history that's, that exists, but hasn't been properly like excavated and Mm -hmm. publicized. Right. Mm -hmm. And then there's also just the working of people of color into American mythology, like the Mm -hmm. movies and the American West. Um, Mm -hmm. And it it took me through, I got through most of the film before I realized like, Oh, there are no major white characters in this film. Mm -hmm. And I didn't notice, and it didn't seem like it wasn't the West. It damn Mm -hmm. well feels like a Western a lot of the time. Um, And I think that that also is, you know, a triumph. Um, Mm -hmm. And what I I would definitely see it again. I feel like I need to see it again. There's so much to Mm -hmm. think about, Um, you know, yes, there's a, it's definitely a film about filmmaking and I don't know where it stands on that. we're going to talk about the film's relationship the spectacle i do not think mm-hmm. it's a straightforward critique um this is coming from someone who's i'm a scaredy cat when it comes to horror this is not this the kind of horror movie that's gonna like make you afraid of the dark mm-hmm. um whereas us might have been that kind of movie for people mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. but it, it's it's thrilling um but it's not the kind of scary where you're gonna be bothered by that <laughs> so that's my very like perfunctory take um mm-hmm. eileen what do you think um, yeah, I, I just loved, I was just, I was so gripped as I haven't been in in a long time. It was, it was so exciting. I was so in. I also had a feeling of being more completely immersed, um, for the first half to the point that I'm like, this Jordan Peele is working at such a higher level. And I like Get Out a lot. I was a little more iffy about us. Um, though he always gets certain things that are powerful. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm like, this is a masterpiece. I'm watching a masterpiece happen. A genre masterpiece, which for me is the most exciting. All masterpieces for just personal reasons. Mm -hmm. Um, I felt like at a certain point it started to get sort of jolty as far as just like the continuity, the structure. But I'm not sure I'm right about that. The more I've thought about that, that I thought the second half, yeah, it was starting to lose me a little bit. Like when you started feeling like it was long, I started Mm -hmm. feeling like it's just, it's not like I'm not still in it, still riveted. I'm just, it's losing me. But since then, I've, you know, thought about it a ton. I'm writing review for Jacobin, which I'm really struggling with. Just just to try to capture what's so great about it is hard. This is a hard film to talk about. Mm -hmm. Um, It's like it's like Peel. And believe me, he isn't saying this. This is me saying has said in my previous two films, I was making it very clear for you. Like I was making I don't even know if you can call it the allegory of the black experience because it's so much about the black experience. It's just there. Mm hmm. But it was so there, and almost anyone could summarize get get out for what it's doing, say. Right. This is a film that's that is doing a lot of things that you feel the I think anyway, you, you should feel the emotional logic a lot easier than you can 
explain the rational <laughs> logic of it. It seems <laughs> right in a, in that amazing way that is beyond like I've connected all the dots for you. <laughs> and now you know what it means. Bye. Which people <laughs> like. And he's literally in interviews feeding it to people. He is. Mm -hmm. he's, he's saying, this is about a kind of, he's making it sound like it's a critique of this, you know, spectacle, the world of spectacle that we live in, that we make of reality spectacle. You know, and, and it sends the harder working critics. That's very few of them. Most of them do a summary and then say something stupid. <laughs> like, well, it just didn't work. Not holding together. You know, whatever dopey thing that they do. It's just embarrassing. But if you were at least trying to be like, okay, he keeps saying it's all about the spectacle, so I'm going to go look up things about spectacle, and then they trip over Guy Debord, Society <laughs> of the Spectacle, and I will just read, you know, the quote. This is from um, um, the Vox critic, Allison Wilkinson, who actually is trying. Um, so she says, she does this quote, in societies where modern conditions of production prevail, all of life presents itself as an immense accumulation of spectacles. Everything that was directly lived has moved away into a representation. So, you know, this is old stuff. You know, we, mm -hmm. we, even if you haven't talked about it or been an academic and have been immersed in it, you've had some sense that this is part of the modern condition, right? Well, the, the equivocal nature of what Peel is doing is, you know, he's not an idiot. It's not like you can just reject it and say, I'm out. <laughs> right. We're in it. We're not getting out of it unless something just, so cataclysmically transformative, probably really bad, <laughs> somehow bombs us out of it and generations later, different kinds of people emerge. Maybe, yeah. but it would take something like that. We're in it, we're not getting out of it. There is no out of it, we're in it. So how you might navigate that is very much resting on the character played by Daniel Kaluuya, mm -hmm. who in, there's a lot of evoking of the Western, of course, as Dolores has already mentioned, He's the Western hero figure being reconfigured. Okay, so there's a final, you know, kind of a, a last shot of him in the movie is of him on the horse in the heroic pose, but he's seen through a mist from the point of view of his sister Emerald. And there's a couple of notes of like a of a Sergio Leone esque spaghetti esque <laughs> score that plays to kind of further alert you that this is the kind of Western hero of a new frontier that he is sort of able to represent okay and that's but it's going to be very tricky and it's going to very much include reality as spectacle okay. mm -hmm. yeah uh, so if you can't get out of it how do you navigate it in a way that <laughs> that is the less uneasy making version of not being directly in touch with reality okay we right just we can't be um and Even though you could say reality is what hurts you, <laughs> we're still framing it up in, in ways that are representational in our minds. But carry on. Sorry, go ahead. Well, no, I mean, do, do you think so? Um, all right. Our main character played by uh -huh. uh, OJ, played by yeah, Daniel OJ. Kaluuya. He, he's the least exhibitionist of characters. Yes. His little sister, M is she's a hustler. <laughs> yeah, she's a performer, you know, Um and it makes sense that she wants to get the Oprah shot. But mm -hmm. I, towards the end of the film, even after they've gone through hell, he mm -hmm. he risks his life to do it, yes. uh, to get the shot, you know? So, and he is the, he's the most, um, like, he's the one you've come to respect and trust, you know? Mm -hmm. And even, uh, even at the end of the film, um, although, well, do we want to go into all this? Are we doing the spectacle yeah. thing? Let's I'd do say, it. Let's do spectacle first, because that's okay. what everyone's talking about first. Okay. okay. Yeah. 
So like, mm-hmm. it, you know, um, when the sort of finale of the film revolves around them sort of getting this famous director who's like, it's, someone said a cross between Werner Herzog and John <laughs> Huston, which is very accurate. Um, <laughs> and, and this guy has created a hand-cranked camera because the aliens throw electrical fields off. So you can't rely on electricity. Electricity is going to malfunction. So this famous director who, who's in on it now and wants to get a shot of the aliens, he's going to get the shot with his hand Craig camera and he ends up sacrificing himself for the shot. Um, and it's a complex sacrifice. He seems to know he's going to die. He says the world doesn't deserve the impossible mm-hmm. or we don't deserve the impossible. The impossible shot. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So he try, but he tries to get it anyway, and then is mm-hmm. sucked into the flying saucer. Okay. And then, but at the end, um, you know, uh, Daniel Kalu and his sister, at some point, um, things uh, sort of pick up the pace so that they're just running for their lives. Mm-hmm. But the last most heroic act of the film is M, the sister, pulling the lever on uh, this sort of um, amusement park feature, which is called the wishing well, where mm-hmm. there's a camera at the bottom of a well that takes a picture of people staring up into it and staring down into it, staring the down into it. Sorry. The camera's at the bottom looking up. Right. <laughs> yeah. And at this, at this moment um, where she's fighting for her life, fighting for her brother's life, trying to like simultaneously lure the spaceship away from her brother and survive herself. She mm-hmm. gets the Oprah shot um, with this amusement park camera. And yeah. that is the climax of the film. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it seems like a very heroic act. It doesn't mm-hmm. seem ambiguous. It seems mm-hmm. thrilling. It seems great. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, like all, I mean, definitely this film is a critique of Hollywood. You know, it's a critique of the industry for being cruel to animals, for being cruel to people who it just tosses away, like our poor former child star working on the mm-hmm. outskirts of, you know, LA at an amusement park now. Mm-hmm. Um uh, but it also, like all of the great critiques of Hollywood that come out of Hollywood, mm-hmm. <laughs> Sunset Boulevard, you know, the list can, goes on. It's so beautifully done. It's a great piece of filmmaking. Yes. <laughs> great spectacle, obviously. Exactly. Blah, blah, blah. <laughs> exactly. And, it, you know, and it knows it, right? So it's like Eileen said, it, we're only critiquing. It's like, all right, we're aware, right? Mm-hmm. But we're still going to try to get the shot. <laughs> I'm think it's absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And, and it- in the shot that way it's a series of photos right yes <laughs> it's like my bridge creating the edward mybridge you know foundational film which is you know if you don't know the history shall we do the whole film studies thing i Let's guess we do really it do. start with my stanford yes the stanford university dude you know rich guy had some sort of bet he wanted he had a horse ranch he wanted to know if the horse's feet when it runs it's full gallop if all the feet come up off the ground at the same time you couldn't see fast enough in other words to see it with the naked eye and so he was betting the the horse's feet come up but he wanted to know so he he hears about uh my bridge is doing all sorts of creative things with you know his little photography studio hires him to somehow get this shot okay so of course it winds up being quite a difficult thing. Um, it's pine again, pioneering. This is arguably the first film. I, there's so many contenders for first film, but this is yeah. a hot, very hot contender. Um, it's was a series of cameras rigged up to a cylinder that is going to trigger the cameras to go off at split split second timing to be able to get a continuous the, the illusion of a continuous shot. All film is an illusion. It's all a series of shots run together fast. Yeah, and your vision, um, you know, makes you see it. You know, as if it's one continuous motion. It's a series of shots. If you look at a, a strip, film strip, 
Okay. Of course, that Jordan Beale is doing so much with, with all of this stuff. Having that be the black photographer taking back the shot that was, you know, rich white guy hires a white photographer to do. <laughs> and what they're filming is, of course, a horse running and a black jockey riding him. Mm-hmm. Okay. And as, as you know, the character of Emil Palmer, when she's, she's talking to a film crew introducing Haywood's Hollywood horses to them, she says, um, you know, that we, something about, you know, nobody knows, the, the jockey's anonymous, nobody knows who he's, he was. They know the name of the horse. <laughs> they don't know the name of the jockey, who is arguably the star of this film. Mm-hmm. So obviously part of the erasure of the black contribution to, um, you know, motion picture history, all American history. Okay. So there's so much going on that, that this is what I mean. You can just keep running your mouth trying to describe, describe, describe. But the thing is, you feel it. If you're in the film, you feel it all clicking together in yeah. such a powerful emotional way that it beats your, the, the speed of your brain to, to, to literally logically summarize it all, why it's so powerful. It's all this is going on rapid pace in a genre film, you know, that's moving through an exciting plot. And this is just one aspect. I'm not even, and I'm not even doing a thorough job (laughs) of talking about the spectacle aspect, the history of the spectacle, the black history of the spectacle, the film spectacle in particular, the TV spectacle. There's so many aspects being, being woven together very, at a very, very rapid pace. It just gives, it just, that's why you're so in it if you get into it. And by the way, it's divisive already. There are plenty of critics and, you know, just audience comments you can read where people are just like, this just isn't working at all. This ain't holding together. This wow. is his worst film. This is so I find that amazing. It seems to me if you can't feel the immediate power and control in that first half of the film, especially, I don't know what the hell's with you. You haven't seen a lot of film because I was just like, wow, is he? He's found a whole other. He's like transcended himself. I'm with you, and I yeah. think I think actually it's as you were saying earlier. Like for me, the thing that saves it is like the lack of didacticism, yeah. like the the, the fact that there's so many things <laughs> unresolved. Yeah, I I too I I remember I, I pretty much enjoyed Justin Chang's review for the Los Angeles Times, but mm-hmm. one thing that he said without um, elaboration was that sometimes the film gets tripped up by its own high mindedness. Yes, yes, yes. And well, it's there's like, a well, number how? of critics saying that his ideas are so big. He can't, he can't, yeah, but then they don't tell you how. <laughs> yeah. Because they I, can't pack, unpack it themselves. I'll tell you, that's how. It, yeah, exactly. And, and also, well, Chang says uh, the closing stretch struggles to bring Peel's grand intentions together. I think that just means you can't explain it in a sentence or two. Mm-hmm. I don't think that, I think his grand intentions do come together, but they're complex. <laughs> so, and um, some of them can't come together again in that easy, you know, frankly, it's just become a thing. You know, Susan, Susan Sontag, if you want to go back to against interpretation, she's like, this is yeah. what we've done. This is how we have killed art. God, you're right. You know, we do this excavating. There's the surface form, and then there's what's behind it, which is the meaning, the tidy meaning that I'm going to now find and explicate this thing into the ground. Meaning, as she says, you just miss the work of art. Yeah. There is not this form with meaning content behind it, and then you dig through the form. It is the, that is it. <laughs> you got to start by exhaustively describing before you can do anything else. And yes. most people won't do that. They won't just say, what's there? What's there? Like, I will give you my favorite example, and we can get into this later because that's a whole other discussion. We can continue a little bit, I think, with spectacle and in, in its relationship to the film Western and how that's being reconfigured here. Okay. She, 
I haven't seen one critic yet, I'm hoping to be the first, that notes there are chapters in this film that are divided into the names of horses mm-hmm. that are on the Haywood Ranch. So it's like, you know, Ghost, and then Lucky, and then Jean Jacket. And by the way, they're <laughs> calling, they wind up calling the whatever's in the sky, which they question whether it's a spacious, but all at the end, they're saying it's, it's, it's that kind of creature and some sort of, something that we can relate to an animal. They are starting to call him Jean Jacket after this horse. Mm-hmm. So no one is noting that the structuring of the film is according to these chapters and their name for horses and why would they be named for horses? So we're going to get into this whole animal slash creature and their alienness from humanity. And so you've got chimp, horses, whatever the, whatever the thing in the sky is. Yeah. In a lineup and yet you're favoring the horses as your structuring device. Why? Um, so we'll get into that. That to me is by far the more interesting part. The spectacle has got to be there because that's all part of this logic, but it's only one part mm-hmm. that admittedly Jordan Peele himself is just throwing out is like, have some, to the sharks, have some chum, enjoy yourself, yeah. people. It's just easier. It gives some people something to grab onto when they feel like I'm not getting it. It means something and I can't get it. Yeah. Um, but it's the be- only the beginning, not the end. So let's save animals and alienation till a bit later and just finish talking about spectacle and Western. So, so an aspect of the Western hero which sometimes kind of falls out of people's consciousness. Though if you read, you know, there's a great essay called, I think it's called The Western Chronicle. It's one of my favorites by the, the critic Robert Warshow, writing back in the 40s. Hmm. And he says, you know, he's talking a lot about aspects of the Western here, but one of the key aspects, and that many people, as well as he, will, will define, is it's a, he's a figure of the landscape. You know, so you could suggest there's a, he's always got a foot in wilderness, always. In fact, his primary self is the wild. Mm-hmm. But he'll always co- be drawn in somehow, often reluctantly, into a civilization debate. So one of the reasons the Western hero, at least in cl- much classical cinema, always had to ride away. He could never stay there. Mm-hmm. And that's a very classic hero thing. He could save a community for lawfulness, for what they then called civilization, that he himself was never going to easily fit into. In mm-hmm. other words, he's got one foot in modernity and one foot <laughs> or dem- American democracy or the American exceptionalist, you know, uh, endeavor or wh- however you want to sum up what seems to be being held up and praised in the typical classical Western. He can't easily stay there. Okay. So he's a liminal figure. Okay. So, so taking that and running with it, you've got Daniel Kaluuya's figure, the, the figure of, the, of his character, OJ, as someone who's much more at ease in the company of horses and the wild and that which is alien to whatever this modern human is. Mm-hmm. And that is uncomfortable at certain points. Like, for example, in the early, that early commercial scene, this is the first job that we see the, 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 the two siblings doing with their horses for uh, uh, commercial entertainment, or it's an ad they're shooting, I think, after the father dies early on. Played by Keith David, by the way, whom you probably no doubt remember from you know, John Carpenter films like Thing and mm-hmm. They Live, genius. In, in a, like, he's got like an eight-minute performance. He's just brilliant. Just, I can't even say enough how bad how great he is. We'll shelf that. But he's okay. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> um, so they're do- it's an uncomfortable moment because it's a really cluelessly awful film crew. And they're being insulting and dismissive and awful in mm-hmm. so many ways. And they're white. And at one point, the director 
you know, after this one, all this chaos and not really listening to him saying, don't get behind the horse. Don't, you know, don't shove anything in the horse's eyes. Don't. He's trying to tell them how to work and they don't care. They're just not listening. He says, well, tell the horse we're ready. Yeah. <laughs> and of course, it's a funny moment. And, and, and Daniel Kaluuya has the most fa- fabulous in his in his stoic minimalism has the most fabulous expressions that are very, very funny. Yeah. And just like, what is wrong with you? You think yeah. I'm literally going to turn to the horse and say, and then the horse is going to understand it. What do you think? Mm-hmm. But at the same time, the uncomfortable part is they're also recognizing he is the one who, who is more aligned with the horse. That's very uncomfortable. Okay. But mm-hmm. it's, it moves through the entire film. There's a point where, you know, they're trying to decide about getting the Oprah shot, et cetera. And, you know, where they should be at a given time when they're dealing with this alien creature, whatever it is. And he says, I've got to go back to the because I have mouths to feed. That's something you say about, you know, your family, your children. He's talking about his horses. Right. You know, I, I, he's got this commitment not only to the heritage, you know, this only black owned and run, you know, uh, horse training ranch for serving Hollywood. He's got that whole legacy he wants to continue. But, you know, he's also got this commitment and understanding and whatever you can call it when there's an intense attachment and relationship to animals. And this is the horsiest film I've ever seen. The most beautiful (laughs) capturing of horses. Haunting. Marvelous. Beyond, most people can't see horses. This film can see horses. Mm -hmm. Such shots that they've devoted to these to the ghost at full gallop, the magnificent white horse and just their eyes and the mystery of their very beautiful long heads on those arched necks that are just like if you have any feeling for horses, it's an atavistic thrill watching <laughs> what they can do with the way they're shooting these animals. Um, so I'm already heading into my giving the horses prominence. Of course, horses are hugely prominent in Westerns. As, you know, as Warshow says, watching men gallop horses across vast plain, that that's the most evocative image of the Western. That's the greatest thrill of the Western. So... Of course, there's also the aspect of putting a black man on that horse, which mm-hmm. is being deliberately used as a way as, you know, something that's meant to give us a, a fresh shock. Because why? You hardly ever see black characters portrayed in Westerns. You know, it's, as Peel says, it's almost always white guys running around in Westerns. <laughs> um, and there's the whole history of slavery. You know, which in which, you know, most often slaves weren't allowed on horses because of the prospect of that they might they might run off. Mm-hmm. So if you see see Django Unchained having a black man on a horse is is in itself a, a kind of challenging image that rebukes this you know the society and the Hollywood tradition. Right. So there's in other words, there's all this complexity being reworked throughout making of the OJ character, the new Western hero, for a reconfigured world where the frontier, shall we say, the world yet to be settled, yet to be discovered, is reopened up. Right. To kind of include him, him, black, the whole black heritage that he's trying to keep going, the way of representing, you know, black figures on film, the way the sky has been reclaimed <laughs> mm-hmm. as a kind of what is it? What's up there? <laughs> Um, um, and what, what is in it? We're assuming this cliche of like fifties era terrors of spaceships and, you know, OJ is saying, I don't think it's a spaceship. (laughs) I think it's some, in other words, it's some kind of animal creature that we don't recognize yet that has octopus like movements often 
has all sorts of sea creature-like qualities often that keeps evoking other kinds of beings that we already know that are on the ground. And, you know, just think of the, there's a great scene where there's a praying mantis on the lens of a camera blocking yes. the image of the alien that they're trying to get. And of course, when first seen, a gigantic praying mantis looks like our idea of an alien. Uh-huh. So we're constantly toying throughout the narrative with what we expect of the alien and what if it's just another animal slash creature that when we don't already don't understand the ones that are that we recognize as part of Earth because we won't devote the time to it. So horses are just big, dumb, four-legged things. Right. And, you know, we just don't have a lot of feeling, even while scientists study and find more and more amazing things, a general public dismissal of the importance of what animals know and how they know it and how they are different from us fundamentally and yet how they relate to us. It's all built in from the time you do the chimp rampage. And the chimp is, of course, closest to us humans in DNA. And we still don't know how to treat them other than to make of a chimp a vile spectacle. Mm-hmm. And the chimp goes on a rampage um, because, you know, we've done something horrendous there. Horrendous. So there's, I, I'm, I'm even, I'm just raving. <laughs> there's so much to talk about. You see why I'm having so much trouble writing this review. There is so much that has great profundity that, where we, you know, most critics are not even trying to to grapple with. Yeah, and and where OJ's um, insight comes into play is in the moment mm-hmm. that he figures out it's an animal, of course, and then right. then you know that he's going to use his horse wrangling skills. And the one moment of a little bit of didacticism, and it's just a sentence, is where he says, "You can't tame a predator, or you can't tame an animal like this, like a horse, like a." Mm alien force (laughs) um you can only come to an agreement with it so he Mm -hmm. knows from training horses that i'm not taming you but we're establishing a set of ground rules that we can Mm -hmm. work with here and that's Mm -hmm. the wisdom that helps him uh, we'll say survive (laughs) the the alien attack um right and And one of the one of the ways that we could just quickly unite spectacle with this animality thing is he just simply knows you don't look animals dead in the eye with sustained eye contact because it's regarded as usually threatening <laughs> um, or, or it's certainly exposing. So he's the one who knows don't, don't look at the, at the sky creature. Yep. So, you know, so that's part of, and of course, looking central to the spectacle. There's something about looking um, aggressive, dangerous, also makes somebody's, somebody's the, the aggressor, somebody's the vulnerable, <laughs> the vulnerable, and so on. And so it also is interesting that, you know, in the end, it's aiming a machine at the sky. The, sky, the, the machine, the camera machine can look at the sky and capture the alien. At yes. the same time, by the way, at the end, that she's, just, she's found a way to destroy the alien and gets that on film, essentially. Right. Right. And it there's a there's an interesting parallel or thing, kind of like something that doesn't get resolved. But maybe, Eileen, you've resolved it in your mind. When mm-hmm. Gordy the Chimp attacks on the set of the TV show in the oh, 90s, yeah. <laughs> there's a shoe yeah. that's defying yeah. gravity. It's a shoe that's been knocked off a young girl who's like devoured by Gordy. And it, it is uh, it's sticking straight up. It's it's uh, like up. balancing on its heel, and it's um, the toe portion is pointing towards the sky. So oh, again, I thought it was the he- yes. okay. You're right. It's the heel, and the toe's going up. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So okay. it, it's defying gravity, like throughout mm. this whole attack, and mm-hmm. that's introduced in the beginning. 
uh, it's introduced in the flashback towards the end where um, Jupe has a has a flashback, right. and um, Jupe because he has we should sh- know he's got. Oh, go ahead. Yeah. yeah well, yes, exactly what you're going to say. Yeah, Jupe Jupe has the shoe as mm-hmm. um uh oh well now I can't now I have aphasia. Um, well, like a piece of <laughs> memorabilia. memorabilia. Thank you. That's what I'm looking for <laughs> um, from from the show. So mm-hmm. I was thinking. Like at first, I thought that the shoe would be tied up, maybe because maybe it would be revealed that the chimp was acting under alien influence. Mm-hmm. I don't think that by the time I got to the end, it just seems something. I don't really, I don't know, but it seems like kind of a marker of like, um, since we don't take the time to seek wisdom about mm-hmm. the rest of the world, including animals who share it with us. There are things that are going to appear to us as like unexplained mm-hmm. or like impossible that mm-hmm. are of course very possible and happen every day. But mm-hmm. I don't know. What's your take on the shoe? Oh, I think you're, you're pretty much saying it. it's clearly there. And I couldn't admire more the refusal to explain it. it was yes. Beautiful. Beautiful. I was praying by the end. Please don't explain the sneaker. Please, please. <laughs> please. <laughs> and he doesn't. He just lets it be there. It's this haunt. Exactly. It there's the mystery that we don't respect. We won't look at. We're just like, nah. <laughs> we we just dismiss everything that doesn't fit into the tidy patterns we already have in our own minds. So it's never even that only it's only a thing that haunts unresolved the traumatized, you know, Steve Jew Park character. Um, mm-hmm. he keeps it, he monetizes it, he he, you know, he charges people big money to go in this backroom museum he has at the ranch. You know, one, what does he say? Something like one Danish couple paid him some exorbitant yeah. amount of money to stay there overnight. He's got <laughs> all this weird stuff in there. Um, so for him, and he doesn't ever talk about it. He doesn't explain it. It's just, is it, you know, it's, it's something that stays in his mind as it should. It's supposed to be the thing that sticks in the mind that is everything unresolved in mm. the world. But you can't, there is no answer. <laughs> we, or at least we don't have it. And it yeah. should be accorded this kind of ultimate respect and desire to know but acknowledgement you may never know but like respect for the forces in the world Mm -hmm. is a thing we do not have as a society Mm -hmm. we do not have it as a general thing the way people relate to animals is so appalling i don't even think i need to lay that out (laughs) if you're at all sensitive to animal you you could even just own a dog the way people will charge up to a dog and just start groping it and you're like you never You don't do yeah. that. You don't, and you don't stare at a dog fixedly, which people who love dogs and think they're cute will do. And you, you never do that. I, but people don't know. They people don't. Even if they live with animals, and this is a big complaint of mine, it's like this is my dog dipshit. This is my cat doesn't have two brain cells to rub together. And I'm always like, look, there's certainly something stupid here. It ain't the animals. Yeah. Just because you can't understand the animals, animals are always trying to communicate. Right. And you don't get it. You don't get it. So you're the dope. Uh, and, and so that's the, to see that built into a Hollywood film, I just couldn't believe my eye. I'm like, oh, my God, this is animal respect without sentimentality. I can't believe I'm looking at it. I couldn't totally, believe it. Totally. There is literally a, a couple, it's just like a five second shot that just pans past horses in their stalls at night. So they're in these inky black stalls and they're moving restlessly. And it's so beautiful. It's so exquisite. I will never forget it. That's how great <laughs> this movie. And there's no, it's not that motivated. It's just, yeah, yeah. The horses know before anyone knows there's something bad. There's yeah. something bad and predatory in the sky, which is why the white horse goes, keeps breaking out of the paddock and running, just running, running, running. 
to get away. And it seems like, you know, mainly because they're out there in the middle of nowhere, there aren't that many people, that the main the main creatures being preyed upon are horses. And of mm-hmm. course, Steve um, Jupe Park is, we find out kind of belatedly, is is buying horses from the Haywood Ranch. They, they're having to sell their horses, which they don't want to do, just to stay afloat. And of course, OJ has every intention of, if they could just succeed, if they could get the Oprah shot, he would buy them all back. What he doesn't know is they're being used as this bait <laughs> by, 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 uh, by Jupe. Um, yep. He's basically sent, sending him out there testing to see if he can lure the alien down. He wants, in other words, to follow up on the sneaker thing. Mm-hmm. In, this, in this convoluted way, it's brought him to, he knows there's something up there. He wants to understand it. In a disastrous moment, he thinks he can, quote, tame it and corral it if he just uses a horse's bait. Yep. And bring it down and make it a, a spectacle of it for a pretty for a pretty sad scattering smattering of a crowd that shows up like a you know a third full stadium out at his uh, theme park and that's disaster as soon as you see it you know you just know that's wow you just signed your death warrant there yep. um so yeah so it all gets tied in in that way and of course the horse just by standing still in its glass little glass box and refusing to run out <laughs> saves itself and doesn't get killed by the by the alien but. Where was I going uh, with this? What was I talking about? Um, I, well, just the um, the way that we, the perverse way of, yes, that we relate to the it. mystery of to the, the mystery, creatures which, that we share the world with. Exactly. Exactly. It, so, you know, my octopus creature is a great example of a phenomena where people were just completely stunned by having to rethink a, a marvelous creature <laughs> that, that suddenly preoccupied everyone's minds because no one had thought to treat it with that kind of attention, respect, and reverence. Yeah. So that kind of thing gives one a little bit of hope, even as, of course, animals are, whole species are dying out as fast as we can possibly kill them off because we're occupying every square inch of land and developing it and monetizing it yes. and making it a spectacle. Um, I, so, you know, go ahead. Well, it, 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 I don't know. Maybe we can. Um, the day that I saw this film, I, mm-hmm. by coincidence, listened to a podcast called um, East Bay Yesterday. And there's a mm-hmm. series on this podcast called Long Lost Oakland. And mm-hmm. this particular episode was about uh, giant grizzly bears that used to live in California. The California state flag has a grizzly bear on it because it was heavily populated um, by these giant grizzly bears. And mm-hmm. they don't exist in California anymore. They were um, eradicated. They were mostly killed, uh, driven out. Mm-hmm. So you won't mm-hmm. find grizzly bears any closer than like um, uh, Yellowstone. So you have to go really, really far in the West to find grizzly bears. And the Ohlone mm-hmm. people, the indigenous people who lived um, in the Bay Area for thousands of years um, mm-hmm. before any Europeans came, lived side by side with these giant ass grizzlies. I mean, they were like 12 feet tall. They were monstrous. OK, mm-hmm. and um, they did it by kind of respecting certain rules right mm-hmm. it's like if you know that's the grizzly bear's stream then you let that grizzly bear have that stream you go to another stream you know mm-hmm. and they, it's not like you know no indigenous people ever got killed by bears or ever had to hunt them they did mm-hmm. but it wasn't uh, it wasn't the relationship that europeans had with them which is that this cannot stand we have to kill them all mm-hmm. and then the this both the spanish and then later the um 
Anglos who came. Uh, the Spanish, the gauchos, used to like rope the grizzly bears, speaking of spectacle, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. fight them against bulls. But the grizzly bears were so powerful that they would have to handicap them. Maybe they tie their left foot to a post or something mm-hmm. and see mm-hmm. if they could defeat the bull. Um, so it seems to be speaking to like a long American history of mm-hmm. like refusing to coexist with mm-hmm. the rest of the species here. Um, and then mm-hmm. as part of that refusal, like turning this like perverse relationship with, for lack of a better word, nature, maybe I wish I had another mm-hmm. way to say it uh, with all the other mm-hmm. animate forces around us, um, mm-hmm. turning it into a spectacle. And it seems like this film is, you know, right. Just, uh, building our i don't know evoking that history you know for sure oh absolutely absolutely i mean you know the conquering the west settling the west the whole the whole you know process of it is you're not only wiping out the indigenous people you're wiping out the buffalo you're wiping out but you're wiping out all the all the there's still a constant fight to save the wolves because even a few wolves left infuriate all the ranchers in the west and they all want to go out and kill all the every last wolf there should be no wolves ever ever anywhere So it's an ongoing, horrific, really ultimately one-sided battle at this point, you know. <laughs> um, yeah. There's not enough of them to pose any kind of threat to the average human, except for the fact that we keep moving into animal territory and they have nowhere to go. So, of course, mountain lions start showing up in your backyard, which they don't want to be there. Foxes yeah. now, you see foxes all the time. You would never saw a fox when I was growing up. That would have been just the rarest, rarest mm-hmm. thing. Foxes are supposedly domesticating themselves. Literally. Oh, wow. They're coming up to people. They have rounder features. They're, this is a thing. It's because, well, apparently we're going to have to go the dog route. <laughs> wow. And, yeah. So it's, this is not, I just saw some sort of, it was supposed to be, you know, you know, one of those animal sentimental videos that are everywhere and they send them all to me. And most, many of them <laughs> immediately are sickening, but others, of course, I'm completely transparent. Yeah, I mean, it's not like I'm above others who are all watching animal videos. We're all watching. But there's this yeah. one video where a deer, there's a doe coming up to people, one person after another, and they're letting the people are petting this doe they're, and they're coming up to people in cars. And it's and they're all like, oh, isn't this adorable? It's like a Walt Disney movie. And I was just appalled. I'm like, can't you see this is bad? This yeah. is just as bad as it could be. Yeah. That doe should not be coming up to you. Yeah. <laughs> it presumably it really needs something. I don't know what, but it wouldn't be coming up to you otherwise. Or somehow it's been tamed and released, or there's something bad. Wild animals need to be wild, and we just we won't leave any wild. Yeah. So one of the things that seems very hopeful about this movie in the end, there's just a feeling of hopefulness, even though it's so uncertain. Every every aspect of it is uncertain. <laughs> Uh-huh. In the end. It's not like you feel like, oh, yay, all is resolved. No, <laughs> they no, They managed no. to get the shot. They killed the alien. Uh, you could, I guess, if you want to be the crudest, you know, human being alive. You could say that. But they, it's so unsettling the end. But yet there's this feeling of weird hopefulness. I think that has to do with a feeling of the world expanded. The possibilities of the world expanded. Mm. And it settled on the OJ character. Because he can somehow still straddle some sort of line between you know human world and particular you know black experience of the world and animal world and creature world if you want to say animal or whatever the alien is um you know i was talking to a friend i've been talking assessively about this film and he was saying you know that he felt actually conflicted when they kill the alien they, they, you know mm-hmm. they, they find a way has to do with floating things so they again you're continuing all these motifs that continue so in such a mesmerizing way so the, the the monkey the monkey rampage the chimp rampage starts when balloons get 
get released from a present, supposed present, and pop up against presumably the studio lights. Mm-hmm. And that seems to at least that's the only explanation they have. Mostly they just say that the chimp had had enough, quote unquote. There's no real explanation, <laughs> but it's pretty clear after the Bible quote what the explanation is. But at yes. any rate, they figure out that that the 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 the, the creature can't 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 uh what digest mm-hmm. um like floating Fake plasticky stuff. things plastic stuff yeah um and so she she cuts loose the the kind of boy cowboy um what are, what are called um blow up thing <laughs> yeah and what, uh, just like a big inflatable uh, like a stay puff marshmallow man yeah that I... kind of thing and they yeah. blows it up and they tries to eat it and then it you know kills it um. And, you know, there's all this stuff with the morphing shape of the of the creature in the sky. At first, it seems almost like it's coming out of a cloud that never moves. Um, that, right. That, that's something from, that Jordan Peele talks about. It's just like he's been freaked out by clouds that stay still. You know, he's bringing almost like dream content from his own life into the movie. And you can kind of feel it. There are things that have this kind of eerie quality that are really powerful and you don't know why. But anyway, so mm-hmm. it comes out of a cloud and at first it's like a moving mist or almost like a bird murmuration or you can't quite see what it is but it just seems like it might be many things holding one form or you can't quite tell and then of course it morphs into more to a more disc shape but it seems organic uh-huh you know with the downspout mouth that sucks everything up into it then it turns into this starts it's morphing again into this lacier this is where it starts to resemble certain of the more ornate octopus octopi uh-huh. <laughs> um and I kept wondering about like why is it morphing into those more beautiful shapes? And and I thought, oh, maybe maybe we're supposed to mourn it. Mm-hmm. Maybe that's right. We're we're supposed to feel like yes, it's being it's being a predator. It's it's representing you could argue something something that has to do with spectacle. You know, there's yes. like a lot of critics are pointing out what comes down out of its mouth is this square shaped, screen shaped, you know, kind of box thing. Oh yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. People are really getting into the spectacle thing. Finding okay. <laughs> yeah, I know. But I think there's there's also the at that point you're supposed to be developing a fascination. I think with you know really this thing is is so is so hard to identify and it keeps shifting and changing before our eyes. What are we dealing with? But it's of course it's such a predator. It's it's becoming you know the well it's it's that animal's going to survive or, or or we are one or the other. But still, yeah. I think you're supposed to feel sort of yes. You're kind of equivocal about, you know, what's in the sky and are we really going to hunt, hunt it down? Is that the only one? Are there more? It's, it's, but that part of it is, I think, the more optimistic part. The opening up of the, of the sky and the rest of the world, if you aim a kind of new sensibility at it. I, I think that's so true. It looks like an orchid or like... Um... Mm. You know, in Jurassic Park, when there are those aliens that uh, there, or even in Stranger Things, mm-hmm. there's like a monster whose face opens up into like a flower shape. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, it's yes. it's got that sort of like feeling. It's magnificent, you know. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I completely agree. I think like it's it's a very ambivalent moment at the end when the when the monster is murdered, a monster when the alien is is brought down. Like you you want the people you come to love the characters, you want them to live. Um but it mm-hmm. seems like such a beautiful creation that um right. it's definitely partly sad that it's, you know, that it's been destroyed. Right. And it kind of reminds me of watching Grizzly Man. You were talking about the whole bear thing and yeah. you, know, they're, 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 you know, a lot of people really enjoyed Grizzly Man lots more than I did because I just couldn't stand Timothy Treadwell at all. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he he 
he would go out there and do everything in his power to be right up in the grills of these yeah. enormous grizzly bears. And he would, he would, you know, put his tent right on their known trails. And he just, you know, he just, he would name the ridiculous things like chocolate drop. And in every way, he just had a kind of nutter quality to him of someone who isn't really <laughs> recognizing what he's seeing. And they interviewed various people about the kid. Of course, he winds up being killed and eaten by a bear along with his, I forget, wife or girlfriend that he brings along. Eh, terrible. Yeah. And, you know, there is a Native American guy, of course, that they go to. It seems so sadly inevitable. I can't remember what tribe. And yeah. the guy says, you got to respect the animal. And, and then someone else comments, I think the bears didn't didn't eat him, didn't kill him for so long because they thought there was something wrong with him. <laughs> so they just were, my, his theory was they're just staying away, staying away from him. Oh wrong with my God. <laughs> Which then makes, he went, I think, 13 years. And the last year they get killed because they're staying way late in the season. He just keeps doing, he just keeps pushing it. Yeah. Pushing it to the point that the bears are super hungry now. And yeah. again, you know, camp right on their their paths basically yeah go right into their streams there's nothing no yeah. you would go right up to them saying idiotic hi chocolate drop you're just like ah Christ. can't you see this animal and i think there's 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 that of like the can't you see can't you see and so seeing again yeah. kind of gets figured but there's another form of seeing it isn't making a spectacle it's actually like i'm trying to i'm trying to understand you i'm trying to fathom you I'm trying yeah. to share the world with you and coexist with you. Um, that's a different look than the spectacle look. Okay. I, yeah, I absolutely. And I think, I mean, is this a good moment, hilariously, mm -hmm. to point out that this was filmed um, with a large format IMAX yes. camera? Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> it is, because we skipped it. I meant to say it at the beginning. I'm glad you me. Yes. And I, I meant to write down the exact, it's Panavision something or other, but it's an IMAX camera. And okay. it's Kodak. Kodak 65 millimeter. 65 millimeter film. And so, I, I guess they employed Christopher Nolan's DP. Yes. How do you say his name? Ho I Hoitman. do not know. <laughs> I tried to look it up and, and it was like, do not compute. So I don't know. <laughs> yes. Too many Nordic, I don't know, Dutch syllables hanging out together. So <laughs> yeah. sorry. Please don't be offended. Um, yeah. Hoitman Hoitema. And uh -huh. so, um, yeah, I mean, it's like, it's really gorgeously rendered and i don't know if you can see this thing in imax anywhere but i i think maybe you can i think i've had i've seen people recommend it i don't know i i'm gonna have to go look because i need to see it again there's so much detail that has this again this quality of of intricate motifs that it's like it's like you know there's a kind of coin or token that that drops when the father is killed it's the first the first alien you know, experience, shall we say, is a bunch yeah. of little objects dropping from the sky. Um, yeah. And that that is so, like, hard to fathom for OJ and his father. His father's on, on Ghost, on the horse, and, and OJ's just standing there, and little there's little things, like, throwing up dust, and, and they, and of course, it, it's so small, no one thinks of it as a threat, but it's, the, right. it's, of course, metal objects dropping, you know, who knows how far down from the sky, drops into the basically the eye <laughs> of the father and kills him. Mm -hmm. And then the OJ character keeps that in a little, you know, kind of baggy attached. I think it's, if it's on his headboard, he's, he's kept it. And then of course, mm -hmm. in the end, there's the scrambling for the, I don't know if they're, I can't remember. Right. This is what the detail I have to go look for. If it's coins or tokens that are being desperately plugged in. Yeah. To the wishing well. Yeah. You know, to make it work. So there's things like this that are just threaded through this kind of, you know, feeling that there's 
that there's meaning that you know not like you have to do the the, the song tag uh, inter- objected to interpretation of yeah. excavation but it seems resonant at least like it's supposed to make you feel these things are being drawn together in some way that is so evocative of an overall experience it's very very powerful stuff i mean really i i, I can't believe <laughs> that he's come this far since since us which didn't seem to me is nearly anywhere in the ballpark as good as yeah, I, I agree. I think I, mean, I really enjoyed Get Out. Um, Us yeah, seemed too. a little different. Yeah, this I think this is the finest one yet. Yeah, so it's so promising that now it becomes very exciting to talk about. Okay, where what where can he go next? Because this seems this seems just ambitious, just yeah. really really ambitious. And if you're you know if you're at all a cinephile, this is the film for you. Yeah, <laughs> usually you can say it has beautiful cinematography in a way that is like practically a turnoff because, you know, that's the excuse given for every art film. Yeah. You know, that you really you found to be dreadful, but other, but it was beautifully shot. This seems important the way it's shot. It seems it seems evocative in a way that I can't sum up why it's important. It, it's, it's a film that makes you feel so immersed and you're seeing so clearly. And in such detail, but you can't your mind can't go fast enough, get all the detail. Yeah. So it yeah. really just almost demands like, oh, I got to go back and see this again. Yeah. And I don't usually feel that way. It's very rare to feel like sometimes I want to because I just enjoyed it. But it's like for me, and this is high praise for me, it's like a Coen Brothers film, which sometimes also <laughs> will discombobulate you. You'll feel that this all seems right and your mind can't put together. Mm-hmm. You can't intellectually put together why that was so right. And you have to go back again. And be like, oh, okay, and let it settle into your system because they're doing something that isn't like every other film. It isn't a formulaic film, even if it's within genre, a genre or genres. It's doing all these kind of departures that can really jangle your nervous system because it's not going the way you expect. So it can really help to, to go back again. So I really need to because my first sense that the, the second half ha- is weaker than uh-huh. the first half, I, I'm really beginning to think I'm, I'm probably wrong. What do you think is the significance of the fact that Peel is always working in horror? Or well, you- it made sense initially. In fact, initially, that was the thrill of Get Out. It was like, you know, that just started a whole cottage industry, obviously. There's so many films that have been like, okay, now we're doing horror as a way of representing the Black experience in America. And you're like, yep. <laughs> just yeah. again, talk about emotional logic. Just like immediately, yep, that's it. Yeah. Yeah. And you don't even have to do any more analysis, right? <laughs> right. It's not only because it's the, the the factors of fear and disgust combined, which define, tends to define horror. Mm-hmm. It's also the quality of horror as being somehow, it goes beyond, it, go, it goes into an un, uncanny, eerie, inexplicable something. It's like, mm-hmm. is it just human cruelty and death and maiming and gore that goes so far your mind can't do it anymore? And you blank and that horror, great horror will, will bring you to the edge of what you can rationally cope with. The best horror films for me are always leaving things somewhat unresolved. The greatest horror film, they, I would say, or it's, it's about ghosts anyway, is The Haunting. And it just won't resolve anything for you. But it all feels united and like it means something more than you can say. Mm-hmm. So I kind of tend to think that's why. Horror is just available to you. Try to grapple with a history and an experience that's so beyond terrible <laughs> that it pushes you right to horror. So that seemed to make all the sense in the world. Me, anyway. Yeah. 
And I mean, uh, it, I think if we think of um, human experience and culture at this moment in time, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, it, right. it, it does seem like the appropriate um, genre to convey all mm-hmm. the feels in the world. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. yeah. Well, um, there's also, you know, a really interesting history. I only know this from, you know, reading up on my, some of my favorite very mysterious, they're called Fear by Suggestion horror films by Val Luton of the 40s. Mm-hmm. And the, the Val Luton commenting that, you know, their most reliable audiences were black audiences, black mm-hmm. audiences. They loved Val Luton films. And so, and that got noted with some disturbance by producers who didn't exactly somehow like that. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, but it makes a kind of sense because there's so much that's, that's what, indicative you know he you know one of the things luton does is bring the horror film out of you know mysterious romania and kind of eastern european dracula like countries and just says now it's you know a cat woman and she's living in downtown manhattan or whatever it's ordinary everyday working people and it's and but the horror comes with so that kind of thing that kind of combination of this is the everyday life that's full of inexplicable horror and dread and it's never going to be rendered explicable. That's at least one way of reading like why this is surprising level of popularity. And that's it for my for my side rant on Valuton films, <laughs> black audiences, and trying to grapple with um, uh, Jordan Peele's kind of auteur um, progression as he, he moves from what seems to be, and I, I hate to be reductive, but let's just for the sake of brevity, seems to have been the black experience of America seen through the, the genre, using the horror film genre in a, in a way that makes entire sense to me. Um, and now, now he seems to be broadening it out, take in, not to include that and take in other, you know, wide ranging um, topics as well. And it's really a thrilling, um, a thrilling development in his career. So we're really going to be watching him closely from now on as if we weren't already. <laughs> All right. I, I think that's it for us. I think yeah. we have done our best with Nope, which is, I'm still getting, now going to go ahead to my review and try to get even, you know, get, <laughs> get down even harder on this film because it's so worth talking about. And I think you'll find if, if and when, if you haven't already watched it, if you do, you are also going to want to really, it's a film you just want to start talking to people about immediately. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Two, two, two strong yeps for Nope. <laughs> two, that's right. That is the name of our episode, which I meant to say um is uh two yeps for jordan peele's nope um thank you dear listeners and of course triple thanks to our subscribers who keep us in horse roping dummies inflatable cowboys hand cranked <laughs> imax cameras all of the above um if you're not a subscriber yet but you like what you hear please consider signing up for um with patreon for all the film stuff content and so just have to follow the news of the podcast on facebook instagram and twitter Join us in two in two weeks for, for more fabulous film talk on FilmSuck. Until then, thanks again for listening. Bye. Bye. Bye.